Hi, I'm Mike Bush. I'm Paul New. And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA. On Ask the A&Ps, we try to solve your uh, toughest maintenance questions. We don't always succeed. Sometimes we even disagree, (laughs) but we try our very best. So if you have a question, particularly if you'd like to be on on the show, please reach out to us at podcasts at AOPA.org. And if you're one of the handful of people that enjoy the show, be sure and follow and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Oh, come on, it's a large handful. A large handful. Okay, two <laughs> <Yeah>. handfuls. <laughs> and, and if any of you large handfuls would like to be on our uh, email list to, to get our uh, our monthly uh, newsletter and uh, interesting maintenance stories, the easiest way is to pull out your smartphone, uh, text the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777, and a little email bot will ask you for your name and email address and put you on the list. So just t- text S-A-V-V-Y, SAVVY to 33777 to put yourself on the list. And finally, it's that time of year. If you're planning to visit Oshkosh for the AirVenture Air Show this year, please try to join us for the live taping of our show where we'll take questions from the audience. It's a fun hour where we sit on the stage and you put us on the spot, which is always (laughs) interesting to see. Yeah, not from our viewpoint. (laughs) Uh, Just make your way to the AOPA tent near the flight line on Tuesday, July 25th at 11 a.m. Come and say hi to us, and you'll have a chance to have your question answered live on the show. That's always very scary. It was fun last year. We had a good time. It was. It was a lot of fun after we got on stage, getting up to the stage. It was was terrifying (laughs) before it started, but once it started, it was fun. And the best part is the stage is only steps away from the best donuts in the air show. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. which I Especially if you get there early in the morning. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we have all kinds of maintenance things to talk about this week. Not, not on the podcast, our own maintenance issues. Yeah. Which is kind of weird that all three of us decided to do things to our airplanes or the airplanes decided to <laughs> do things them. to us. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't you start, Paul? Oh. <laughs> it's like you did well, some brain surgery. Yeah. But I'm going to get in trouble because... Sort of, kind of. My oil consumption has been like a quart in two hours for a long time. And it finally got to the point where I it exceeded Continental's guidance. So I did another ring wash, which I knew was going to fix the problem, but it identified the two cylinders that were the most likely cause, which naturally were not on the same side. I had number three and number four, which means I pulled one cylinder off the middle from each side. Yeah. Wouldn't you know it? Yeah, wouldn't you know it? So we got them off and we're going to hone and re-ring. I'm waiting for a, a new ball hone to show up. Our old one just wouldn't quite do the trick. But anyway, the most amazing part is I got another look inside the engine because, you know, I did, I got chastised for pulling lifters a few months ago proactively, but now I get to actually see the engine firsthand. Wow. It's for 2,300 hours. It is pristine on the inside. It's you absolutely eat off beautiful. It, right? <laughs> oh, well, it's the wrong kind of oil, but yes. Yeah. That's great. It's really nice. I was pretty pleased. So we'll probably be putting it back together tomorrow morning and hopefully I'll get my oil consumption up to maybe a quart in four or five hours. How many hours did you get on those cylinders? 2,300. Oh, they were original. These are all original. Actually, That's great. two of the cylinders were pulled off before I bought the airplane, um, but not because the cylinders were bad, but someone pulled the exhaust down and two of the studs failed and they didn't know how to replace the studs in situation. <laughs> so they, just so the they pulled the cylinder. <laughs> well, they didn't replace them. They pulled them off, replaced the studs and put them back on. So it's they're all original cylinders, but... Once again, you know, every simple job is just one, you know, broken bolt broken away, bolt from, away. <laughs> from, yeah. from being a three-day oh, ordeal. At any rate, so... They didn't, they didn't use enough mouse milk early well, enough in the process. That's apparently. right. Or, or croil. Yeah. Yeah, one of those. So anyway, mine's... I, I'm feeling pretty good about it so far. So far. But there's plenty of opportunities still, you know. We don't have <laughs> opportunities for things to go wrong. 
Do those two cylinders run the hottest because they're the middle cylinders? Wow. On my airplane, all my CHTs have been within about 10, 15 degrees of each other. Oh, so I really God. don't have yeah, any. This series is amazing. <laughs> yeah, really? It's such a good yeah. cooling Wow. In, oh in climb, I run around, oh, on a hot summer day, I'll run 370 in a climb initially, and it cools down as I get higher. But typically in cruise, I'm running about 320, 340 if I'm trying to get a lot of power out of it. And they're all really close. I was just curious why those cylinders needed the overhaul. Well, it's just the the oil rings were all clogged up. Well, the other ones are marginal, but Hmm. not bad enough to cause me to attack them with tools. Well, were you able to force fluid through the other four? Yes, yeah, so yeah, so they're probably they're not fine. too terrible. I had two of the other two. The fluid just went right through. Yeah, the, the uh, ring the wash other... procedure is you know it's sort of interesting because it it, it it's it's either a therapeutic tool or a diagnostic tool. Yeah. And you never know which it's going to be <laughs> until you try it. Yeah, but well, this if is you the... can force the fluid through, it it cleans stuff up. And if you, and can't, if you can't force it through, you know that, that th- <laughs> those are the there's problems. your problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, we did this. Uh, the ring wash a couple of years ago, and I knew I had some that were marginal. And sure enough, the two that were marginal two years ago are way past marginal now. So but anyway, I'm happy to do these two. It's all good. So that's my story of woe for the moment. I'll tell my story real quick. I had a tire failure. It was a tube failure, actually, but it did not happen on the runway and it did not inconvenience anyone. It was after a flight, uh, I was debriefing the flight, and we were standing about 10 feet away, and all of a sudden we heard this ominous pssss. <laughs> <laughs> and, and one wing was lower than the and other. And I turned around, and my airplane's sinking on one side. I'm like, oh boy, I guess I need a new tire. And I turned back and kept debriefing because I knew it was doable, right? It was easy to do. And sure enough, somebody had a tire, somebody had a tube. Before I was out of the debrief, um, the ramp crew was lifting up the wing with their strong backs and putting um, a dolly under the wheel and getting it out of the line. And we jacked it up, got the tire off, and I made the next flight. It was amazing. So so a little explanation here is you're at pylon school. I was at pylon racing so you're school. Racing school. So yeah. so it sounds, sounds kind of like Indy 500 where they change the was. tires in five seconds or something. Yeah, so if and what happened is uh, the tube had been pinched when it was installed, and it, it actually got eight years in that condition. And finally, wow. yeah, well, what's, it was and what's really important to state is that it wasn't installed by you. That's <laughs> yeah, sorry, yeah. previous owner. <laughs> and I kept the tube as a, a learning teaching experience for school because it's oh, yeah, it's exactly what you don't want to happen, but um, I it, guess it the is- pounding. It's one of the most common inexperienced mechanic things to go yeah. wrong. Yeah. Almost always happens. Pre- previous owner who shall remain nameless. <laughs> yeah. It was a sweetheart, but yeah, he, he made some mistakes. So, well, but anyway, my, hey. My, my frustration was I, I it just completed the annual. I was going to sign it off on the 1st of June. I actually signed it off on like the 6th of June, I think. I took it up for the for the post-maintenance test flight, I had changed a cylinder. And so this was like the break-in flight for the cylinder, but it was a, a nickel cylinder, so it was going to break in like instantly, which it did. And everything was great. You know, all, all the JPI probes still worked after all of that disassembly <laughs> and reassembly. And um, I was a happy camper. I landed the airplane, taxied over the fuel pumps, topped off the tanks, taxied back to the hangar, Got out of the airplane to push the airplane back in the hangar, and there's fuel dripping from the root <laughs> of the right wing. So this this is a is coming from a from an auxiliary bladder tank. There's four of them in in my in my airplane, and then this one tank had 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 deteriorated up near the top and had tried to repair it, but obviously unsuccessfully. It, it after the repair, it it you know, it passed the, the, the leak test, but then a couple of weeks later, it didn't pass the leak test anymore. So, <laughs> so I, um, I, I checked to, to see what it would cost to, uh, to get a replacement bladder. 
and the, the cost was not outrageous. It was like $1,700. Availability, 24 weeks, like half a year. Ouch. So you're going to um, fly with low fuel for a while. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, so we're, I, I, uh, spent yesterday doing a, an unapproved repair, Uh-oh. which is okay. Cause the repairs have to be, yeah. they don't have to be approved. They only have to be acceptable. And I deem this <laughs> acceptable. I, I got acceptable 30 minute working time PRC mixed up a batch of it. It's really designed to seal metal tanks, or so I couldn't find anything about repairing bladder tanks. Apparently, the the only really kosher repair for bladder tanks is is to vulcanize stuff on under yeah. heat and pressure, which you can't really do all the tanks in the airplane. But at any rate, I uh, I I did my very best to to seal it up with with this PRC working as quickly as possible. <laughs> Today, I'm going out there and. Closing up the wing, the PRC's got 24 hours on it. It says full cure time is 30 hours. And tomorrow I'm going to put fuel in it. And just so everybody everybody out there think good thoughts. Yeah, <laughs> for Mike. <laughs> and we'll see what happens. So that's my story. So have you ordered the bladder? No. Ah. Hope no. springs eternal. <laughs> that's <laughs> right. We'll, we'll, we'll. <laughs> Our first question is from Mitch, who is wondering why his engine had the shakes. Go ahead, Mitch. Thank you. So I'm a Mooney owner, and it's uh, got an IO360 normally aspirated engine, and never had a problem with it. Been flying for about 2,000 hours, no problem, many, many hours with this Mooney. And so I was taking off out of uh, about a thousand foot airport with a passenger, and that's pertinent actually. And Flew up to about 6,000, leveled off. I'm on flight following, actually an instrument flight plan, so I had controllers all the way. And I was talking to an approach controller and leveled off at 6,000 feet, I think. And I started leaning. And now, Mike, you're going to cringe a little bit here. So I have an EDM 700, and I started leaning the engine, and uh, I used the uh, lean find. So the uh, lean a peak lean find feature. And, but I don't dilly-dally. You know, I cruise right down to uh, about eight gallons per hour. Ended mm-hmm. up uh, probably 30, 40, wide open throttle, 30, 40 degrees, lean a peak. And uh, settled in, turned on the autopilot, and began a conversation with my passenger. And so I, um, flying along, and about two, three minutes later, I started to feel a vibration. And it feels it, it felt exactly like you feel when you lean the engine past uh, the smoothness. And it started to build, and it got to the point where, you know, it's clearly something was wrong. And uh, I immediately made a turn. It was enough to make me t- to make a turn to the nearest airport. So I made a hard left turn, crawled, actually called out Mayday, and then started look, looking around. I had pretty good altitude, and uh, I wasn't within gliding distance, but farm fields everywhere. So it was not going to be a serious problem, even if I had lost the engine, probably. But undesirable, of course. But so I'm on my way to this nearest airport, and uh, the first thing I did was look at the um, engine monitor, and the CHT was flashing, and I don't a uh, CHT warning, and I, I have that set to 400. The gauge I think is 475, the stock gauge. So I had to set to 400 to get an early warning for this sort of thing. Didn't notice it, so I um, pushed the mixture in all the way, and. Just like that, the engine started smoothing out, coming back down, ramping down through that smoothness, except in the opposite direction towards smoothness, back to normal. So I actually contemplated turning straight home, but I thought better of it and just decided to get on the ground and see what was going on. And so uh, I landed, and um, the police were there, and the airport manager was very nice (laughs) of everybody to be there. And... uh, Parked the plane and and the airport manager gave me a ride to Rochester, Minnesota, and rented a car and went home. Hmm. And so I had a mechanic come out and look at it. But before then, I ran it by my own mechanic, and he felt it was probably a, a blocked injector that triggered this. So I had the mechanic look at it. I asked him specifically to look at the injectors and borescope it, 
And he did that, and he said everything looked just fine, but he cleaned the injector anyway. So I went back to the airport and flew home, full rich all the way, circled the airport, my home airport, and leaned it out just as I did before, and I could not reproduce the problem. Hmm. So I got her on the ground at home, and uh, I purchased a borescope, and that's the picture you saw, and everything mm -hmm. looked a-okay, and a lot of lead. Um, but um, my cylinders do run pretty cool. And of course, I'm using leaded fuel, so it doesn't surprise me that there's some lead on the piston crown. Mm -hmm. But um, absolutely nothing wrong. I don't see a lot of lead on that one. No, that, uh, not that on the valve, fine. but on the piston. There's yeah. So the mechanic found a broken nose core insulator. Mm -hmm. Yep. In cylinder number three. So he replaced that. I think he replaced it with a massive electrode. I had iridium plugs, fine wire plugs in champion? the lower. Yeah, were they champion? Tempest. Oh, mm -hmm. interesting. On the bottoms, right? On the bottoms. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. I continue to have fouling problems. So I, I left the massive electrodes mm -hmm. and the top cylinders, and there was no problem. So I decided to just replace the top plugs at that point with Tempest. Mm -hmm. The crack plug was the top plug. The That's right. Yeah. Oh. It was mm -hmm. a top plug, yeah, a massive electrode. Um, mm -hmm. So it's a chicken, which came first, the chicken or the egg situation to me. So I think what happened one is, and if you look at that EGT and CHT tracing, you can see um, where the number three cylinder is the brown line on the mm -hmm. bottom. It always runs cooler. That's normal for my plane. Mm -hmm. And then right when I started to uh, do the leaning process, you can see where I went past peak and then then Lena Peak leveled off. That's where I was happy. And then abruptly, the EGT went up on the number three cylinder. Mm -hmm. And then the uh, CHT skyrocketed. So my theory is that something happened to that nose core insulator, maybe by passing through that area mm -hmm. of uh, maximum cylinder pressure, damaged the nose core, and then triggered a, a, um, a pre-ignition episode. You weren't there that long. I mean, I do that all the time. I used to, despite what Mike says, I sometimes use um, <laughs> the lean find. I've been using it for years, and sometimes I just do a big pull, but it, you're not there that long. Well, we were all noting that your EGT on cylinder three went up as your CHT was going up, which indicates it wasn't a detonation event. Usually I was thinking e pre-ignition, because detonation yeah. usually goes down. Yes. I didn't know that at the time, but my research at the time told yep. me that um, that the right. uh, Pre-ignition causes the EGT to go up, which makes sense. True. So, and also um, the rate of the, the rate of increase of CHT. It was one point one degrees per second. It's it almost demands a pre-ignition event to for the CHT to rise that rapidly. What amazes us is your and cylinder plus looks picture, good. <laughs> the picture of yeah. the piston didn't really show. Yeah. Detonation signature. Well, I think I caught it in time. I mean, the, yeah. the red line, the Lycoming red line is 475, and I never, never got that high, um, I don't think. Well, Close. but it was going up for a it couple It was on minutes. its way. <laughs> if I hadn't pushed that mixture forward, I, you know, it probably would have held the piston, right? It, it was a couple minutes, and it went to 484, according to the data, which doesn't lie, right? And The piston looks like it might have been subject to very light detonation in, in that it's pretty clean. <laughs> and there are a lot of areas where there are no deposits on it, but it doesn't look like it was in he heavy detonation because there's no pock marking on it. So this takeoff was pretty uneventful, full rich all the way, and the uh, EGT is descending smoothly as I climbed. And uh, I don't know what would predispose me to detonation in a situation like that. Because detonation no, uh, could trigger a breakage yeah. of the nose core insulator, couldn't it? It, it could, but... Um, but we're not you know, thinking I, I don't see any evidence of, of anything more than, than light detonation, if, if that. Um, so do nose core insulators just sometimes break? They do. Do they? Oh, particularly, really? if, particularly if the plugs are champion. <laughs> more commonly but um but they do they they do break sometimes and i wish i had the plug yeah yeah, we do too i've never seen one that would be interesting to see that's what he said yeah. so hmm. a, a friend of mine actually ours who used to be a uh, higher up at continental was telling me many years ago about an experiment that he had done 
or participated in in the test cell at Continental where he took a pair of needle nose pliers and purposely broke a ceramic on a spark plug. And then they ran the engine at full power. This is at sea level, so it was actually making 100% power. And with the damage that he caused to that spark plug, from the time they went to full power until the time the cylinder hit 800 degrees was about two minutes. 800 degrees. 800 degrees. It's amazing so, that the piston yeah. survived to 800 degrees. Right? Well, I, I didn't say anything survived. I just <laughs> so I, well, didn't. I mean, but if the piston when oh, once right. the piston yeah. melts, the the, yeah. the the CHT comes down automatically. It's, yeah, it it's comes a down feature. quick. So <laughs> it's a self-limiting feature. <laughs> it's it's, it's, it's a, yeah feedback. So yeah, I mean the the fact that you pulled the throttle or uh, went went full rich on the mixture. Um, when I do this, talk about detonation and pre-ignition in some of the classes that I do with the Cirrus and Columbia guys and 210 guys, in the moment, and this usually happens at, at takeoff, it seems like, that's when the events typically occur. I tell them, say, look, don't worry about which one it is. You're, you don't have to decide which one is happening in the, in the moment. You just know that your CHT is going up an EGT is erratic or going up. Something crazy is happening on one cylinder. Full rich. It's already full rich. So pull the throttle and land. That's mm. that's just what you're going to do. And that's what you did, basically. Yeah. yeah. So I'm not sure what to do, but I, I replaced those plugs and I'm just flying. That's. Yeah. I think that's what you do. What we would have recommended. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. And you, and you, react, you reacted fast enough that you saved the piston, saved yeah. the cylinder. Yeah. Save the engine from being full of aluminum. Yep, yeah, I, I love. Think, it. I I I think JPI actually engineers these pre-ignition events because they sell <laughs> so much hardware in the, in the wake of. And I've got an EDM seven hundred for sale pretty soon. I think they, I think <laughs> they they go around in the middle of the night with needle nose pliers and breaking breaking ceramics. <laughs> No, your your uh, write up was really interesting, Mitch. And and one of the things we were talking about was how um, you n noted that a lot of people you asked advice for on this event opined that it was a plugged injector, and which would make you go more lean and which would be cooler. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You pointed that out. That's totally correct. And it's almost impossible yeah. for a cylinder to 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 detonate when it's lean to peak. Yeah, because uh, it's pre not making is, any power. pre ignition is possible at, at any mixture. Yeah. So good, good call on that one. Everybody was wrong. <laughs> yeah. And you also pointed out that a lot of people are confused between detonation and pre-ignition. And what pre-ignition you know, is easy to understand. I mean, we all know about um, uh, diesel, engine. diesel engines, yeah. <laughs> you know, but detonation is a little harder to understand uh, and something that you can't put your hands on. It's uh, mm -hmm. you read it on an EGT gauge or inter internal cylinder pressures. And it's fairly mysterious even now to me after looking into it. But of course, pre-ignition is not is not the same as as uh, dieseling. It's it, it's there's not enough high enough compression ratio to cause compression ignition. It's some something, something in the yeah. combustion chamber that's gotten so hot that it's acting as a glow plug. Yeah. So, so sorry, it's, it's a it's quasi. Like, it, yeah. It's like diesel engines when they're first starting, not diesel engines when okay. they're running. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> But the weird thing about detonation is light detonation isn't bad, and it's often present. It just cleans stuff off. It just cleans stuff off. So you know, the ultimate in detonation really is a a bad magneto, isn't it? Yeah. Um, advanced if it's timing. firing randomly, not even advanced timing, yes, but also firing off randomly. I mean, right. that's sort of a the ultimate. Yep. That's what took my husband's prop off his plane <laughs> when he had a mag go <laughs> south, and it started firing at weird times and literally broke the bolts on the. Well, wow. I suppose if I suppose suppose if it's firing at really weird times, it could you could call it pre-ignition if the if the spark plug is firing while the piston's still going up. Uh, yeah, yes. you'd have a combination of pre-ignition and post-ignition. Kind of yeah, <laughs> be all yeah. over the place. And a rough engine, probably. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> it was rough. Very, very rough. <laughs> oh yeah, it was rough. But um. Yeah, so it was interesting how you sampled the community and you got all these different answers that kind of showed how there's all kinds of, you know, wild goose tales out there. About and, and now you have three more sample uh, answers <laughs> to the question to add to the pile. But you were on the right track, Mitch. You were you were 
laser focused on the on what we we agree with you that it was that spark plug. I'm I'm so glad you were able to get on the show because I think it's it was a really interesting discussion with good data. So thank you for documenting it so well. And, All right, um, you're welcome. And coming on. And we'll see you around the block on back to work analysis. to help pay for this all this stuff. No there kidding. Yeah. Okay. Well, you take care and happy flying. Yep. All right. Thanks, Thanks ben. You too. Bye bye. Bye bye. You know, ever since ADSB Weather launched, pilots have been questioning why they should try Sirius XM Aviation Weather. There's lots of reasons why pilots should try Sirius XM. First, a good pilot is always using redundancy, and having a second weather source is always a good idea. Sirius XM is satellite delivered weather so you can check your weather at the run-up or at 500 feet or at your destination 500 miles ahead. Plus, there's no line of sight restrictions to worry about if you're flying in the mountains or the backcountry. It has some really cool features that ADSB doesn't have, like storm cell attributes. They can tell you the tops, speed, and direction of a storm. But the biggest reason why a pilot should try Sirius XM Aviation right now is that you can get three months for free. That's right. SiriusXM is giving pilots three months of aviation weather and entertainment so they can try all that SiriusXM Aviation has to offer, and then they can answer for themselves whether SiriusXM Aviation is right for them. To learn more about this special trial offer exclusively for AOPA members, visit aopa.org SiriusXM. So our next question is from Brian, who wants to employ the services of the Mythbusters. Go ahead, Brian. As long as you didn't, yeah, Mythbusters, yeah. that'll work. Is that us? <laughs> yeah, I guess. It's okay. one of my favorite shows ever, especially when they blew up the cement truck. That was awesome. We won't do that. It was a great show. It was a great yeah. show. And, and in the aviation industry, I think that I am now talking to the to the Mythbusters. So <laughs> first off, thanks for having me on. I've, I've listened to, I, I didn't discover your all's podcast until way too late. And I've gone back and listened to, I think, every episode. Yeah. Um, and my aviation library has all of Mike's books. So thanks for everything that you all do for aviation. I recently got to start flying in a Cessna 340 with a buddy of mine in, in his 340. And he's a very mechanically inclined guy. He's, he's got his own auto mechanic shop, which maybe that's a uh, red flag in, in and of itself that you know, <laughs> mixing, mixing uh, things with wings with, with things without wings. But um yeah, we like we like maintenance involved aircraft owners. Yeah, yeah, yes, it, yeah. And in the post flight, he hopped out of the three forty and began hand turning the props in the opposite direction of their traditional spin after he opened the oil fill tube, and in his words, started burping the gases out of the engine. And when I looked at it and saw what was going on, it, to see the leftover gases from the it, it, it seems to me like it was the leftover gases from the combustion fuel and all that kind of stuff in there and it was very interesting to see how much just polluted air and gas was coming out and he he had remarked that his oil stays remarkably clean and he gets great life out of the oil of his engines so it made me start thinking okay well is this something that i need to be doing in my mooney and why do we not do this if this is a good thing? And then I discovered Gerald's podcast. And so I thought, aha, there's my source of my answer. So here we are. There's a, quite a few people that do that. Yeah, there, there's, there, there's a, first of all, most of what comes out when, when you remove the oil filler is vapor, Robert. Is, um, is steam. All right. I got it right. Steam uh, it, it's, it's, it's you know it's it's not clean steam it's dirty steam <laughs> but it's mostly it's mostly steam the combustion of hydrocarbons the byproduct of combustion of hydrocarbons is 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 two things carbon dioxide and h2o and most of the h2o uh, goes out the exhaust in the form of steam but some of it gets past the compression rings and into the crankcase and if, if you take the oil filler cap off after you shut down the engine, the first thing you'll notice when you take the cap off is that it's soaking wet. It's just dripping. And uh, taking off the cap and allowing that stuff to vent out does purge some of the moisture from the engine, which is a good thing. It doesn't purge it all. It, um, 
if you hook it up to an engine dehydrator, that pretty much purges it all. But how much the turning of the prop part assists that process, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know too many people that do the, the turning of the prop thing. Most I do know a lot of people who take the oil cap off. I've done that, and, and I've seen it done quite a bit on the Columbia's and the Cirrus in particular. Take the cap off. Do this first thing when you get out of the airplane. Take the cap off. Leave the door open because you don't want to forget this. And, I mean, you don't want to forget to put it back on because critters like to crawl down inside the engine and stuff like that. Always turn the propeller backwards, as you say, because if you have impulse couplings like many airplanes do. Yeah, and the Cessna uh, 340, where, where it's a shower of sparks, I, I would, wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter, and I would yeah. turn it in the forward but direction. But Just make it a practice for everybody to turn it backwards so in case people don't know what they have. But the moving of the pistons, it should, in in my pea brain, the, the pistons moving back and forth shouldn't change the total volume of the crankcase because as one moves out, the other one moves in. But the reality is, is when you pull that propeller backwards, it actually does Pump. cause more steam to kind of <laughs> really? puff out. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Interesting. Uh, and, and I totally okay. did not expect that. We, the first time I tried this was, oh, back in 2007 or eight, it became a thing with the Columbia guys. And uh, so I don't always do it, but I'll do it once in a while just to see it happen. And um, then, you know, you unload the airplane, you push it back in the hangar, and the last thing you do is put the cap back on. Don't, don't leave it open, unless you have a dehydrator. But yeah, it, turning the propeller, it makes no sense to me why it pushes a little bit extra out. I don't know, like Mike says, I don't know how much value there actually is in it, but you know, it can't hurt. Can't hurt? Wow. Yeah, and it's not combustion. You're not sending so much. It's like Mike said, you, you get... The water molecules, like the acid molecules, and getting all that stuff out is is a good thing. I mean, the combustion happens on the combustion side, and yeah, if it's in the case, it's blow by, right? That's yeah, the only way by. the vapor gets into the case. Yeah, got it. Interesting. So does does he do it for his car too? <laughs> <laughs> How would you turn it backwards, Mister Car Guy? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> if if he's able to do that, then. Uh... There's some patents that I need to go file. <laughs> right. Yeah. Put my name on there as well, because I don't know how he does that. But yeah. Wow. Yeah. No, it's it's interesting. Appreciate your all's thoughts and feedback on that. Yeah. I learned something. That's I was I was spring loaded to say, that's crazy. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense at all. But wow. So very interesting. I'll have to try it. Yeah, I mean, even in even in the uh, Mooney, I've I've tried it a few times and um yeah, with with the reverse cranking of the prop, you do see, you know, you can you you can feel the pistons turning over, and you can see, you can see more gases coming out. Hmm. A little puff. Yeah, it won't okay. work so well. It it works really good on the Continentals because they have the filler port on top of the engine, and the filler port is fairly large. On the Lycomings with the top filler port, it works fairly well. Yeah, and on the, the four-cylinder lights, yeah, with the yeah, with the little that. tube on the rear, right rear, it's not, it's not going to work so well. Yeah. Well, hey, thanks so much for yeah. everything that you all do for aviation. Sure. Appreciate the uh, call and the question, Brian. Good it was in, it was a good one. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. Take care. Right, you yep. too. Our next question is from Les, who wants to know why his cylinder failed at such low time. Go ahead, Les. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll give you a quick synopsis of the scenario. I, I departed uh, an airport in the middle of Waycross, or, or Waycross, Georgia, which is in the middle of Georgia, uh, with a full passenger load in my arrow. Anyhow, the engine just started running rough, uh, just almost right away during the climb out. And um, CH, I looked down at my JPI, and CHT, EGTs were just going out of limits, and I knew I was in trouble, and, and uh, the airplane was developing well, not developing a lot of power. In any case, you know, the best bet was just to head back to Waycross, and which I did uh, fairly promptly. And um, and then we went through a troubleshooting process um, that I'm certainly glad to discuss. And you were sent uh, pictures that uh, of the, what the cylinder looked like. In any case, 
160 hours on that on that cylinder after being uh, there. There it is, 160 hours uh, on that cylinder, and and uh, I just uh, went through an analysis, uh, you know, sort of uh, forensically afterwards, and uh, still trying to determine. I'm not totally positive with what uh, what the result was. No, we we don't have uh, the engine data for this, correct? Uh, you do actually. We went back and forth uh, with uh, with your tech folks on uh, what I was doing as far as operating the engine, and I was doing lean of peak, which got me a little paranoid. You know, it's the old philosophical question: lean of peak, rich of peak, and so on and so forth. Well, you probably if, if this if this occurred early in in your climb, you probably weren't lean of peak. You probably full rich, right? Correct. Correct. I was. Yeah, I was yeah. just about to start leaning, but yes, that's correct. And you're talking about the cylinder failing, but the cylinder didn't fail. A piston it's obviously failed. Piston, yeah. But you you said that EGTs and CATs were going all over the place. That can, can you be a little bit more specific? Was it first of all? Are you talking about the one specific cylinder? Or are you talking about all of them? No, the one specific cylinder. It was right. it was a number yeah. three cylinder to be specific. And what and what what were you seeing? Well, I was seeing the CHT was starting to go out of sight. Uh, I think it hit 500 at one point. Mm-hmm. Uh, PGT was just about up there, and then once uh, apparently when it when that piston failed, then the then the temperature started to drop. I wish I had the analysis for you to to uh, to show you where, where where things were at, but uh, we sort of went back into it after a while and uh, consulted with an engineer friend of mine who's familiar with with engines and so on and so forth, and uh, I also consulted with the with the folks that did this particular cylinder overhaul. And prior to this problem, in other words, I, I, I had gotten the cylinder rebuilt or exchanged, I believe it was actually. So in any case, the one thing that we seem to notice comparing flight aware data with the savvy aviation data was that for about six seconds, it appeared as though I had no fuel flow to that cylinder oh, or no fuel flow at all. Yeah. How did you determine that? Well, I just sort of expanded out yeah. the graph and looked during the climb out. I thought it was attributed to me pulling the power back. I, I don't. I don't understand. Um, we, you don't have fuel flow instrumented to individual cylinders. So he said that. that's why I'm asking. Yeah. Yeah. Correct, Mike. I, I misspoke. I noticed that the uh, the fuel flow decreased. The total fuel flow decreased momentarily does that make sense yes okay and, and for about six seconds and i paired it with the flight aware data and uh, it, i thought that this was happening when i was leveling out realizing that i was having a problem but this was actually happening during the climb up so that was the only real evaluation through you know the uh, sort of post-mortem of this cylinder afterwards that we could determine that it potentially could be fuel flow. But I was concerned that maybe my past operating experience or, or practice with this, with this airplane has been lean of peak. Now, full disclosure, I don't have gammies, mm-hmm. but my gammy delta has been generally anywhere from 0.1 to 0.2. Yeah, you don't have to have gammies to run lean a peak. And the damage you see on this piston doesn't happen lean a peak. Correct. Uh, and he wasn't lean a peak at the time. Right. This, yeah, this you were rich a anyway. peak at the time. Yeah. Um, in I, other words, I looked, this wasn't I, happening in past flights. I looked at these photos very closely, or as closely as I could, and I saw no evidence of detonation. So. I'm my suspicion is that this was a a pure pre-ignition event. It couldn't have just been a, a piston failure. I, I mean, I, I had a piston failure in, in my engine some years ago, but, but if it was just a piston failure, then the CHTs wouldn't have gone out of sight. They, they just would have gone down. <laughs> I don't have the data in front of me, to, so I, I, I'm not, I can't see what the rate of rise of CHT was, but my guess is that it was quite rapid. And um, 
this has all the earmarks of a pre-ignition event. Tell me about the spark plugs. What, what, what type of spark plugs? What were the condition of the spark plugs when they were removed? Uh, they were championed and they were, um, well. <laughs> were they fine wire or massive? I can't answer that question. Uh, honestly, mm-hmm. I can't. I finally found Les's flights. I'm looking. What did, What was the date when this happened, Les? This was uh, end of January, Kelly. I believe we January. talked about it, right? Uh, probably because I'm the breakdown manager. Yeah. Okay. I found it. Oh, okay. can be flagged with a high CHT. <laughs> so, yeah, his CHT went to 517. Oh, uh, that's and toasty. His EGT initially rose prior to the event or as it went up. Uh, fuel flow was like at 16, but it was decreasing during the event down to 14. Still, you know. Well, you'd expect, expect that in the climb. For a four-cylinder engine? I mean, that's that's pretty good. It's not lean. But then after the event, yeah, the EGT goes all over because the cylinder's toasted. But, I mean, I can I can send the picture to Ian so he can post it. Um, is there something else how, you want how, to know? How rapid was the CHT ride? So it started at six minutes and it, it, it peaked at eight and a half. So in the two minutes, two, I think two I and can, a half minutes. Okay. Yeah, I think I can do a delta T on this um, and go from here. To, I'm not an analysis. Uh, let's see. EGT3. Oh, CHT3. I'm sorry. Uh, it went up 114 degrees per minute. That sounds wrong. Yeah. That's, oh, that's yeah, per right. minute. I want it per second. Fa- I'm sorry. One, two, well, minute, two, two degrees two per second. That's yeah. pretty fast. That's yeah, very, that's very fast. fast. The only thing yeah. that can cause CHT to rise that fast is pre-ignition. Pre-ignition. Yeah. It's very yeah. violent. Um, there are several things that can cause pre-ignition, but the, the most common thing it's I think that we see plug. is yeah. uh, is cracked spark plug uh, yeah. nose core insulators. We have more problems with that with Champion plugs and with Tempest plugs, and we have Tons of problems with that with champion fine wire plugs to the point that some of the manufacturers have uh, ha- have said don't use them. I appreciate that. However, and I'm, I'm certain if anything, there, there, there was no there was no cracking uh, on those plugs. Well, I don't believe that for a minute, because even if the plugs were perfectly healthy, they would have been cracked. They after would this be event. cracked after. <laughs> Maybe you couldn't see the cracks. Is that possible that? It's I don't think any spark plug could survive this event unscathed. Usually what happens is it's a chicken and egg question as to whether the spark plug was damaged by the event or the spark plug caused the event. But when I look at the piston, I'm not seeing any evidence of detonation. I'm not seeing any pock marking. It, 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 everything looks, looks perfectly smooth, except for what was obviously severe corner melting and, and, and eventually a, a, a failure of that corner of the piston and overstress. So it looks to me like a pure pre-ignition event. Do you think that fuel flow had any contribution? Mm, it wasn't that bad. No, I don't think so. Fuel flow typically doesn't result in pre-ignition is what Mike's saying. It's usually... An ignition thing or a hot spot that's causing the um, yeah the, the combustion the to happen is caused by something that's 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 really hot inside the combustion chamber that's uh, igniting the fuel air mixture prematurely. Well, I guess I'm a little confused because the um, you know the, the the folks that that, that changed the um, out the cylinder after we received it and then uh, I, I put in the same plugs and then I took it back because I'm concerned. I took it back to my base and, and had the mechanics that work on the airplane go through. Uh, they actually do a magneto overhaul, and they went through a whole process of magnetos, spark plugs, the whole ball of wax, and they couldn't they couldn't find anything. They they don't have the evaluation skills that you guys have, but um, at the end of the day, you know they're you know I, I just kind of listened to them because they're experienced mechanics, but they thought it was a structural failure somewhere within that piston or a material failure. Well, it had to be more than that because it, I mean, I considered the possibility that the the piston had a flaw in it that caused it to fail. And and that, like I said, that's happened to me, but that doesn't cause a thermal runaway. That just causes the the cylinder to shut down. So clearly there, there was a, a severe thermal event that preceded this. 
This wasn't just this wasn't just a, a structural failure of the piston. This was a thermal runaway in the cylinder that created such high temperatures and pressures that the cylinder ultimately, I mean, that the piston ultimately failed. But the piston failure wasn't the cause of it. It was the, it was the effect. Is there something that I can do in my operating practice being um, an old fart airline, retired airline pilot? I, I'm happy to blame myself. So that that's, that's no. a mistake. I mean, yeah. pilots always seem to blame themselves and mechanics always blame the pilots. But, <laughs> but, but I, I, you know, I, I don't think there's, I don't think there's anything about this event that, that was, that your operating caused, you know, if, if, if your operating was a problem, we would have seen problems in the oh, other four. cylinders as well. Right. Hey, you um, can't do anything to just one cylinder. But, and, and you can, and you can't cause pre-ignition even if you wanted to. I mean, if you, if you really tried hard, you could probably cause detonation. But you, but you can't cause pre-ignition. Even if, if the engine's in a test cell and we say, hey, let's, let's try to get this to, to go into pre-ignition. You can't do that. It's, it's a material failure. Well, we're glad everybody was safe. Yeah, Definitely. great other, story. Other than the piston. Yeah. <laughs> Sacrificial part. Yeah. There we go. I, I yeah. never want it to happen again. If that's yeah. yeah. You know, another, another interesting question is what happened to all that aluminum? It went somewhere. That filter must have looked pretty interesting. You know, surprisingly, uh, you know, we cycled through oil. Uh, surprisingly, it, it really didn't. Uh, I wonder if a bunch of it has got, got stuck in the suction screen and never even made it to the filter. I, a lot of it was there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Wow. So anyhow, almost well, got 30 hours on it. And good. so far, I've, you know, managed to have various friends and my wife survive. So awesome. Good. Well. Great story, Les, and, and really great pictures. And um, thank you for coming on and giving us your testimonial. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> your story of woe. It yeah. has a good ending. So that's, yeah. good that's ending. nice. That's the important okay. thing. My pleasure. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. All right. See you, Les. Take See you. Our next question is from Richard, who's taking a good look at carb temperatures. How are you doing, Richard? I'm doing great, guys. I'm honored to be here on the Mount Olympus of aircraft maintenance. <laughs> <laughs> That's a new one. <laughs> I, I cannot let Helen ever listen to these podcasts. <laughs> it's just, it's just no, no living with it. Okay. Well, I've got good news for you. I do not have an engine monitor, so we won't get bogged down in all that nasty data. <laughs> all right. The last. Oh, got that out well. of the way. <laughs> so, are you saying that you've you've heard all the all the the sermons about how badly you need one? Yeah. And so, yeah, and, you're and waving your rights fast right away. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're waving your rights. Okay. Okay. Your Miranda rights. Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> Les has an EDM seven hundred. He'd probably sell you cheap. Oh, that's right. <laughs> well, I didn't even have a carb heat gauge until I took my Comanche in to have a, a, an annual done on it. And Ooh, an ice maker. The dart mechanic, the dart mechanic who I really generally most of the time like, <laughs> went ahead and fixed it. And uh that confused the heck out of me because uh, the plane is still kind of new to me. I've only had it for seven or eight months and I was developing kind of a standard operation procedure for it. And uh, now I had this new data point that did nothing but confuse all of that, of course. And uh, I took it out on the first long trip. Uh, we went down from Virginia to, to Charleston, South Carolina. <clears throat> and it was a hazy day and the temperature was right around freezing, maybe a little bit below freezing. And as I watched my new functional gauge, and it, it was separated into you know red, yellow, and green. Yellow being from about zero to twenty degrees, I want to say, and it kept dipping into the yellow, and then occasionally into the red. And at that point, I felt compelled, rightly or wrongly, to go ahead and pull the car key. Um, and sure enough. The, the needle went back into the green and then I would close the car beat again. And then about two or three minutes later, the same process would occur and I'd have to do it all over again. And then finally I said, well, what the heck? 
I'm going to go ahead with partial carb heat and see if I can get this thing to stabilize, which is what I did. And things worked out pretty well. What I didn't know then and I know now is I probably should have re-leaned uh, once I, um, I put in car, partial carb heat. I didn't do that, but I know better than that now. But the other thing, the thing that, that really made me um, contact you guys is that I had heard back, particularly in my training days in a 172, that partial carb heat was not necessarily a good thing. It was a bad thing for the engine for one reason or another. I don't know that. And then also I heard from another member of uh, uh, one of the Comanche groups that I'm in that uh, the carb heat on the Comanche is a little bit different, or maybe the uh, ingestion of the air is a little bit different that in such a way that it wouldn't make as much difference as it would, say, in the 172. So you're free to debunk that, either one of those myths, if you like. Well, first of all, there's absolutely nothing wrong with partial carb heat. The reason... For the, for the old wives' tale that you heard about not using partial carb heat is that in airplanes that don't have a carb temperature gauge, there's a possibility that you might apply partial carb heat and put the carburetor in a bad place because you, you don't have any feedback on what you're doing. But with a carb temperature gauge, there's absolutely nothing wrong with using partial carb heat to keep the carb temperature in, in the lowest risk range. Concerning the 172 <laughs> versus the, uh, versus the um, Manchi, depends on what kind of 172s we're talking about. If we're talking about real old 172s that have 0300 engines. Those things are super, super vulnerable to carb ice. If you're talking about newer 172s that are, powered by four-cylinder light-combing engines, they're pretty much exactly the same as the Comanches. Yeah, the, the, the POH doesn't even really refer to anything. You, you, know, you don't pull it on descent or landing. The POH doesn't call for it anyway. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, that, that further led me to believe that maybe there was some difference between the two aircraft that I just mm -hmm. wasn't aware of. Now, Richard, if you were distracted by having a carb heat gauge, I would highly suggest you don't get an engine monitor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, talk about distraction. <laughs> Here's another confession for you. When I first got the airplane, and I went up with my instructor, and uh, we were watching the, I do have CHT, we were watching the CHTs, and man, it would just not go above 200 degrees. And I'm like, what the heck? These are really cool cylinders. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> yeah. It took us about three flights to figure out that the carb or that the CHT gauge was in Celsius. Oh, <laughs> yeah. oh in yeah. Celsius! Oh Yay. gosh! Oh. <laughs> a nineteen fifty-eight Comanche, believe it or not. Oh my goodness! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Be careful about that engine monitor when you decide to get one. Mm -hmm. It'll bite you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Richard, thanks for the call. It was a good question. We enjoyed yeah, that one. Very good. Thank you. I appreciate it. This sure is the podcast for engines going south. Our next question <laughs> yeah. is from Jay, who's wondering if his leaning procedure has led to his problems. Go ahead, Jay. Hi. Uh, thanks for having me on. Really enjoy your throw. Okay. So I have a uh, Continental A65 in my 77 year old Taylor Craft. And um, I just finished restoring it about three years ago and has awesome. a, essentially a brand new engine, new millennium cylinders, new uh, mags, new carburetor. And that's sort of my question there. So um, the original Stromberg carburetor sort of got lost during the overhaul. Long story. <laughs> Probably a blessing. <laughs> yeah. So I put a Marvel Shevler carburetor on it. And um, anyway, but the, the old Continental is like that. Everyone I've ever talked to, the the mixture control was always wired full rich. And so when I put on the marble shebler, I thought, you know, I'm going to go ahead and hook that up. So I put in a mixture control and it worked wonderfully. I could lean and everything worked just great. And I just lean by ear. I don't have any instruments or electrical system for that matter. So anyway, <laughs> um, I love it. <laughs> after about 300 hours, my oil consumption startling, suddenly went up. And so we started exploring that, and we found that I had a broken ring in the number two cylinder. 
And so, you know, we repaired that. We're able to get all the pieces of the ring, no problem at all. Anyway, but everyone said, well, it got too hot is why that ring broke. And so my, my question was, is my sudden ability to lean making that cylinder get too hot? So, you know, I replaced all the rubber on the induction manifold. The baffles are all brand new. I mean, I don't think that's an issue. But um, I just wondered, you know, why, why, first of all, did they ever have it wired all the way full open? Mm. And then second is, is the reason I have a mixture control, the reason that cylinder is hot now. Or I think it may be hot. But you don't have an engine model. Yeah. You don't know. <laughs> I, was, I was resisting saying that. Uh, I just, uh, I'm not going to be the one that says it this time. I, I would, I would think it be highly unlikely that, that, that power plant management procedures would be related to a broken ring. What sort of, when you're leaning, uh, what sort of altitude, what sort of, I don't even know that I can ask this question power on that engine. Yeah. What sort of power setting? What, what sort of percent power are you running? Are you like wide wide open throttle when you do this? Or? No, usually. So I'm um, wide open. I would actually be right at red line. So it's just twenty three hundred. So I bring it back to twenty one fifty, and that's okay. right in that. At low altitude, right? Not too high. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I you know typically cruise twenty five hundred to forty five hundred feet. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that little engine. I'm, I'm not better. a I'm not a, a small engine small continental engine guy, so I don't even know that that engine can develop that kind of heat, or I, I just I don't know what the compression ratio is on it. Does the A sixty five use the same cylinders as an O two hundred? Because I was a little surprised you could buy A sixty five cylinders from Superior. Yeah, you can. Yeah, they. Oh. Started just a few years ago, they brought them out yeah. again, and so I put them on there. But but you're right, though. I, I believe they are sort of an O200 pattern because I had to have my exhaust system resized to match right. the supports. Well, so what they're suggesting is that the cylinders, or at least that cylinder, was running hot enough over a long enough period of time that it embrittled the piston rings. It's um, not much time though, 160 hours. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I did that in my Cardinal, but it took 1,500 hours before an oil control ring stuck because of the heat and the oil coking up in there, and then it finally broke. Now I don't know what ring broke. Maybe it was your compression rings, not your oil control rings, but I think the mechanism might be the same. But that's a process that takes quite a long time, I would think. For I don't think I've oil. ever heard of an oil control ring breaking. Uh, mine broke into nine yeah. pieces. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. When they yeah. break, they break into lots of pieces, it seems yeah, like. Yeah, it came out and I was like, is this supposed to look like this? <laughs> but yeah, at 160 hours, I don't think that you could have been running that hot to cause that to happen. I would be more inclined to think it was a, a material defect. I hate to Or an pull installation that issue. Uh, okay. Ring gap Too tight? Setting. Or- yeah. Okay. Yeah, and thought of that. Okay. Well, one one thing that can happen is if the braking isn't done properly and the cylinder glazes, mm. Mm. then you can have through. a lot of blow by that heats up the ring pack uh, quite quite a lot. That that's a possibility. Did you have cross hatching? Well, the cylinder off. The the cross hatching looked really good on it. So okay. I feel like I feel like it's got a pretty good break in, and, yeah. and I, uh-huh. follow, I followed your procedure for that. So, balls <laughs> <laughs> ah. to the wall. You know, we we don't have an engine monitor, so we can't spy on how you've been leaning. Um, we can only go by what you're saying. If you were, if you thought you were leaning and you were actually leaning it to the peak EGT by mistake, you would be running it as hot as you possibly could. I still don't know in this engine if that would cause this failure. But leaning in general pushes you over into the low CHTs. That's the fallacy. People think that when I'm running lean of peak, somehow that makes the cylinder hot. But it actually makes your cylinders run cooler if it's done properly. Okay. And A65 is a very low compression ratio. Right? Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. I just don't see that getting up there. Well, that that's that's how great i mean because it it makes me feel like you know maybe it was just a materials issue and and not anything else yeah i i would i would chalk it you chalk know, it up to compression side and stuff like that and how hot it really runs so mm-hmm. okay yeah i would chalk it up to the stuff happens 
category, <laughs> which is un, it's disturbing. You know, it's not yeah. satisfying. No smoking gun is Mike's term for it. You know, we just can't really pin it on anything. But it doesn't sound like anything that you did. So, so quick, what, just a quick follow up. So why why did they wire those full rich out? I have a theory, but I may be wrong. But I have a theory, and my theory is that maybe this aircraft was a trainer. And they're worried about students messing with the mixture. And so they just took that away from the students and made it easy on them. Uh, I mean, almost all A65s I've ever seen, it's just wired full rich. Maybe that's right. I never thought of that. Well, folks, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Yeah, it was a great question. Very interesting. Thanks, Jay. All right, take care. Bye. Bye. Well, that's a wrap on another great podcast. What did we get right and what did we get wrong? We always expect to hear from you on that count. Please keep sending us all your tricky questions and try to stump us. Your questions and comments can be mailed, emailed to podcasts at aopa.org. And we do read and try to respond to your questions. Hopefully we will see you at Oshkosh in a few weeks. See you there. Bye-bye, everybody.